Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. So we can find out about some unusual ways to produce energy and turn waste into something useful. So what if we made E. coli bacteria do actually something useful that would actually really help us? Well, a bunch of researchers have done just that, as well as some others who've looked to roses to help them improve their solar panels and turning waste, literal waste, into concrete. Space, the final frontier, and if you love science fiction, then you will have dreamed of one day going to space, or perhaps living in space, living on Mars, perhaps. And Mars is actually a really promising candidate for potential life there, not only bacterial life that's existed there in the past, but maybe life in the future. And if you've seen the movie The Martian or read the book that it is based on, you'll know that maybe it's possible to grow food on Mars. It's quite a difficult process and there's a lot of radiation and we don't really know much about the soil, but in the movie, they did that. And that was a nice little bit of movie science fiction, perhaps. But researchers from the Dutch University of Wageningen have actually uh, grown plants with uh, Martian and lunar soil. So this group of Dutch researchers basically grew a crop of a variety of different vegetables and cereals grown in soil that has been designed to be like the Martian and lunar soils that we've got back on Earth. Now, we've sent a whole bunch of space probes up into space that have analysed the soil from Mars and from the Moon. And from that, we can actually come up with basically the blueprint of Martian and lunar soil. And what they've done is then they've made these artificial simulant soils of Martian and lunar soil and grown an abundant harvest of radishes, peas, rye and tomatoes. And they were found to contain no dangerous levels of heavy metals. And this is remarkable because Mars, for example, has got a lot of iron content in its soil. It's one of the reasons why it's so red. And there was a lot of concern that if you grew food in a Martian soil, that perhaps you'd actually be exposing yourself to a dangerous amount of metal. We didn't know. I mean, you don't know until you've actually grown some of it. And these researchers have done basically the next best thing. And by growing foods that you can actually eat, radishes, peas, rye, tomatoes, you know, it's, it's very interesting. You can actually eat and taste them. And this is important because any future Mars missions aren't going to be able to take enough food with them to survive the entire time. So it would be better if you could actually take stuff with you that you could reuse maybe grow a crop to sustain yourself on the planet. And uh, since 2013, when NASA sent through some really detailed analysis of the soil, this team of researchers have managed to raise about 10 different crops on Martian equivalent soil. Now, they've still got some ongoing tests on the remaining six crops, which includes potatoes, which if you've seen the Martians is very important. Um, And they're continuing their work. Um, And it is a little bit related to the, all the Mars missions that are planned in the next 10 to 15 years. NASA plans to send a crewed mission to Mars in the next 10 to 15 years. And people such as Elon Musk and the Dutch company Mars One are also trying, or at least speaking about, setting up human visits or colonies on the Martian red planet. But to do that, they're going to need food, and this is part and parcel of that research job, is making sure we can grow food there. So... Life on Mars is not confirmed, but growing life on Mars, plants and foods, is taking one step closer to being deemed possible.
another staple of science fiction is the railgun, the electromagnetic railgun. And this is in a number of uh, giant mecha robot fighting suits or things such as Star Trek or even anime such as certain scientific railgun. Uh, Basically, the principle is that you use an electric field to accelerate a slug or something in metal to incredible speeds so and to fire it so instead of having a bullet which is powered by gunpowder you're basically launching along a rail hence the term railgun um, using the powers of electricity and magnets and science fiction people have been loving this for years and years and years and years and it's a great being a fanciful concept the united states navy are one of the biggest researchers in crazy and out there ideas and weapons darpa which is a u.s military research Institute is also one of those people involved in this process. But the US Navy in particular has been looking for a way to come up with something they can launch off their ships because big cannons are bulky, particularly on those big kind of ships, battleship cannons. They're huge and they're perhaps unnecessary. So instead, they were looking at railguns and they've sunk $500 million into trying to develop a super powerful ray gun. And in theory, should be able to reach speeds of Mach 7.5, which is 9,000 kilometers an hour, which is seven times the speed of sound, which is crazy, particularly that they would be able to travel over about 160 kilometers of distance. So if you think about how fast a bullet moves and think about the phrase faster than a speeding bullet, this is many times faster than that. So ideally, you can see why the military is so attracted to this. And they've, they've done some testing with a big gun and researchers such as from the Office of Naval Research have shown uh, the press some examples of six interconnected steel plates that have been shredded by a single test round of this crazy railgun. There's one, one real big problem. When you're firing something with that much power, you actually require an enormous amount of energy. And I am talking absurd amounts of energy currently it takes about 25 megawatts of power to power a railgun and that alone that kind of power sure means that it's a huge deal but you also need to be able to generate and store that power it's no use having a gun that you can only fire once it's kind of a bit defeats the point plus you need to be able to do it on a boat so you don't have a lot of storage space options there with you and there's really no getting around that fact. It's not that railguns don't work, it's just that they require, like giant laser systems, absurd amounts of power that makes it really not feasible for any actual deployment in reality. So until we come up with a great way to come really store energy in a really efficient and tiny way and recharge that quickly, laser guns, laser cannons, railguns, They will remain science fiction, and I hope they do. But if by some chance we manage to solve this storage and generation of electricity into really tiny forms and create it really cheaply and efficiently, then whilst we may also have ray guns and lasers, we'll actually be in a much better place because by then we'll have solved all other energy generation problems in the world. So it's quite likely that in the future that this will never actually appear on anything other than the pages a science fiction book, or on the screens of a television show or movie. But the research is useful in helping us push and understand the limits of what can be achieved. 
and help us learn more about energy generation and storage techniques, which actually may help our everyday lives with things such as cars, phones, houses, and helping power them and store them in more efficient ways. solar system there's a variety of planets there and mars as we spoke about before is one that has encaptured all of our imaginations but before that venus with this bright glow that makes it quite visible to the naked eye has enthralled humanity for generations hence the name venus god of beauty and venus is in fact a similar size to earth and does have an atmosphere on it and at one point it even had oceans but the problem is that well it's now got a very, very thick choking atmosphere with lots of CO2 and surface temperatures of about 460 degrees, as well as hydrochloric acid rain and a and a, earth, a pressure from the air and its thick atmospheres about a hundred times the pressure of Earth, which make it the opposite of habitable. In fact, it makes it almost deadly to even send a probe there. Uh, any probe that we have sent has been swiftly crushed and killed, which is quite unfortunate. But the European Space Agency has the Venus Express mission, and it's been studying the atmosphere of Venus to help it to understand what on Earth is going on that just makes it so intense. One of the things they've discovered is that Venus has an electric wind, which is strong enough to remove components of water from its upper atmosphere. And this is really sh shocking. So researchers at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, when studying the data coming back from this, said that it's amazing. It's shocking. They never dreamt it was possible that an electric wind could be so powerful that it can suck oxygen right out of the atmosphere and hurl it into space. Now, that's big news, because if we didn't even know that this mechanism could exist, now that we can have a more understanding of why we might see planets without water, which means when we're hunting for other planets, we can start looking for this kind of thing in place. So because Venus is so hot, uh, with 460 degrees Celsius, and because it has such a thick layer of atmosphere, about with 100 times the pressure of Earth, this should have produced a whole bunch of steam, because it had water at one stage. We know that. We know that as a fact. But where did all this water go? It obviously boiled and evaporated into steam. But something then had to remove all that steam. It had to go somewhere. It just can't vanish. We think that most of the early steam probably split into hydrogen and oxygen. Now, the light hydrogen just escaped and the oxygen oxidized into rocks over a billion years. But this new thing that's been discovered, this electric wind, this solar wind, which provides a million mile per hour stream of electrical conducting gas blowing out of the sun, could have slowly but surely eroded what was left of an ocean's worth of oxygen and water from the Venus's upper atmosphere. And what they thought was just one small part of the process, this type, this whisking away of the very top, turned out to actually in fact be a large monster more than capable of sucking all the water from Venus on its own. 
Now, just as every planet has a gravitational field, uh, we also understand that most planets have a weak electrical field around them. Now, the electrical field, the same force that sort of sticks laundry together and produces static electricity and also pushes electricity through wires, can help to push the upper layers of the atmosphere off into space. Now, in Venus, the much faster hydrogen escapes easily. That makes sense because it's small and light. But the larger oxygen, which is a lot more heavily charged, is also sped up fast enough to escape the planet's gravity. So once the steam sort of rises from the lower parts of Venus' atmosphere up to the top, it then gets whisked away right off the top. So the water molecules rise from the lower atmosphere up to the atmosphere atmosphere after they've evaporated, and the sunlight breaks the water into hydrogen and oxygen. And both of them are whisked away. And think about the field strength difference between what we see on Earth and what we see on Venus. Earth's electric field is about less than 2 volts of, of strength. Uh, for example, a D-cell battery is about 1.5 volt each. Now on Venus, <laughs> the field strength is 10 volts, so 5 times more than on Earth, which is also one of the reasons why these ions, these oxygen and hydrogen ions, are being sped out into space very quickly. And this is really fascinating because now we can see the electric fields on other things, such as the moon Titan, which is the moon of Saturn, and on Mars and various other places. And we can see whether or not we see the same effect. We long thought that Mars would have a similar approach where its atmosphere has been whisked away by the solar wind. But because its field is not as strong as Venus's, it's not getting all the things just ejected as swiftly as it is happening on Venus. It'll be interesting to see how Titan's behaves. And, for example, with Mars, NASA mission's MAVEN is currently in orbit around Mars, hunting with its sensors for Mars's electric field to try and pick up what happened to Mars's water and atmosphere. It's highly likely that the same thing that happened on Venus has happened to Mars. So even though Mars might have a weaker electric wind than Venus, it would still necessarily play a role in acting like a conveyor belt, moving ions up and then out of the planet. And all this just goes to show just how lucky we are to live on Earth in a relatively stable and nice atmosphere and to take for granted and helps us not take for granted all the water that we do have and the very lucky special place that we live in. But it also means when we start hunting for other planets or other areas, we can start checking for electric fields and solar wind to see if there's any water left on that planet. And it may help us in the long term find other planets with water and possibly life. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Grange Point. This week we found out about a whole bunch of unusual ways to turn waste and byproducts into energy. Ways to use biomimicry to improve our solar panels and ways to turn bacteria into helpful allies in tackling climate change. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.